This is the MLW Radio Network. Hey, this is former WWE superstar and ECW original, The Blue Meanie. And Josh Chernoff. And uh, we're excited to announce that Mind of the Meanie is now powered by the MLW Radio Network. Myself and Josh Chernoff will bring you a show every week where we talk about everything from wrestling, movies, sports, and useless knowledge. But most importantly, we have a great group of neighbors there with front row material. Absolutely. Front row material. We've got Mike Freeland. We've got Mikey Whipwreck. And we have got hashtag... This is Jerry Lynn. You're welcome again for that. I love to be here with you guys. I'm glad to call you neighbor. Maybe I'll stop over for uh, some extra coffee or a cup of sugar or have a slice of dropped pie. Ditto. Please tune in to Mind and the Meanie. Please keep supporting Front Row Material and we'll be a part of this great MLW radio network. Everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. Welcome back to another episode of Overbooked, where we cover the extremely unauthorized story of ECW. My name is Mike Freeland. We are now heading into chapter 17. If you are following along at home, this chapter is entitled Taz on Top. And uh, if you guys have been watching AEW, you know that Taz is now a part of that organization. And he is now teamed up with Brian Cage, and he has brought back the FTW Championship. Now, for some wrestling fans, you might not be familiar with Taz. As far as ECW is concerned, you may only remember him from his time in the WWF, but now you're being more introduced to him uh, in AEW as an on-air personality as far as a character standpoint. Now, he did do commentating for WWE and for Impact Wrestling, but now he is with AEW, and we're going to be talking about Taz in this chapter. We're also going to be talking about a lot of other ECW superstars as well. So let's kind of jump right into it. Taz was always known for a phrase that he made popular in the late 90s. Beat me if you can, survive if I let you. Now, after years of buildup, on January 10th of 1999, it was Taz's night to ascend to the top of the ECW roster. The show was ECW's first pay-per-view of 99. It was guilty as charged. It was emanating from Kissimmee, Florida. Taz challenged Shane Douglas for the title, and he knocked him out to win the belt. Heyman had spent years building Taz into someone who would be perceived as a real deal. And now, he was officially ECW's flag bearer. The title change ended up being the straw that would eventually drive Shane Douglas out of ECW for good. Now, it wasn't because he was mad about doing the job for Taz. In reality, Taz and Douglas remained friends even after Douglas left the company, but more so because he believed the title was the closest thing he had to an insurance policy that would allow him to get the thousands of dollars of back pay ECW had owed him. Shane would say, For months, I had been told that the culmination of the Taz angle was that I was going to win, Douglas said. So a week before the big match, I couldn't get any of my calls returned. I knew the only way I was going to get the money is if I had the belt. I would use it for leverage. I guess I could have no-showed the card, but as good as ECW had been to me, I didn't want to screw the fans. The hardest thing I ever did in my career was to walk out of ECW. 
Now, this aside, the show is also featuring the clear signs that there was issues with Haman. Both Masada Tanaka, who was booked this event, even though the relationship between ECW and FMW was on the rocks, Takamishinoku also was booked, but he did not appear, simply because Heyman never took care of their visas. But Taz was still more than the face of the company in the ring. He was the one who designed the ECW t-shirts. Taz uses artistry to create logos and other designs for the promotion. Taz might have been the personification of destruction in the ring, but behind the scenes, he was nothing but creative. In a quote from Elizabeth Tut, Taz was a great person to work with. He was really professional. If I ever called upon him and said I needed something, he got it to me immediately. Most of the wrestlers I dealt with were guys like that too, who also handled things on the business side. That's the way ECW ran, in and outside of the ring. The guys who were playing these mean and horrible characters on television were absolutely not even close to being like that outside. But another star's emergence in ECW betrayed a seemingly contradiction and the mentality of ECW fans. ECW had, almost since its birth, tailored itself to the smart fans, or what they call them, smart marks. They were ones who read the newsletters, who looked up the news on the internet, and discussed the inner workings of the industry in online chat rooms. Sid Undy, who was actually Sid Vicious, or Sid Justice, was the antithesis of what a hardcore wrestling hero was. Sid was a likable country boy who loved to play softball. He was also someone who got opportunity after opportunity in the wrestling business because of his height and his impressive physique, and it wasn't because of his five-star matches. He was exactly the kind of wrestler that the ECW faithful loved to ridicule when he was in the WWF and WCW. But when he made his way into ECW, the place exploded. Sid's short stint consisted of him doing very short matches and drinking in all the admiration of the fans who had scorned him for years before. Backstage, Sid pretty much kept to himself and never really embraced the ECW family, nor was he. After only a few appearances, Sid found himself shortened on pay. Therefore, he decided to leave. He next turned up in WCW, where his active career unfortunately ended after a gruesome ankle injury during a pay-per-view in 2000. The first ECW Arena show of 1999 also saw the return of ECW's original tag team phenom, The Public Enemy. However, their stint in WCW had seemed to prove nothing so much as Heyman's ability to emphasize their strengths and disguise their weaknesses. In ECW, The Public Enemy had gotten to be this wild, ultra-violent daredevil team. However, in WCW, the team kept the tables that was central to their gimmick, but found their act needed to be toned down significantly, and they found themselves forced into WCW's more rigid match formula. Well, finally, the tag team's contract expired. Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge found themselves back in ECW, but Heyman had no interest in reviving them as the world-beating tag teams they had been years earlier. This time around, as far as Heyman was concerned, the sole purpose of the public enemy was to put over ECW's new generation of stars, particularly the Dudleys. This seemed to not really thrill Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge, as they were once again gone from the promotion, this time for good. The fact that they had been given plenty of notice when leaving in 1996 did not seem to make Heyman any more willing to work with them creatively. It sure seemed like the trust was gone and the heat was on, Terry Funk would say. Having experienced all that they did in WCW for the time, the two wrestlers tried the WWF waters, only to find their WCW move coming back to haunt them. 
for a second time. The team's decision to pick WCW over the WWF when both companies were courting them in 1995 had apparently left WWF decision makers not so high on them. But they did end up eventually entering the WWF. The public enemy were immediately beaten and humbled repeatedly by the mid-card team of Ron Simmons, who was known as Farouk at the time, and John Britt Shaw Layfield, also known now as JBL. They were the acolytes. The lone television match between the two teams actually appeared to be a battle between the two, with Layfield in particular taking a lot of liberties and stiffing the public enemy at seemingly every chance he could get. Now, could the public enemy have found new life as money-making acts in the WWF? No one will ever know, because the decision-makers there showed more interest in humiliating and firing them than trying to find out how they would work. Ultimately, the public enemy never was as marketable as they had been in the mid-90s. They paid a price for leaving ECW, which the wrestlers realized. But one star was also looking to leave the family. Sabu was considering a WCW offer, even as ECW television was building for his world title match against the perennial rival Taz. He ended up not taking it, but his relationship with Heyman was becoming increasingly strained. With Taz firmly established as ECW's top star, Heyman was turning his attention to building Lance Storm and Justin Credible collectively as the Impact players into the top heel tandem. Lance was a trainee of the Hart Brothers Pro Wrestling Camp in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. He produced some of wrestling's top talents and polished many others. Aside from Brett and Owen, the other wrestling Hart Brothers, Calgary also produced Brian Pillman, Chris Benoit, Chris Jericho, and many other top-flight performers. As a heel, Storm reminded fans consistently of his pedigree, saying after every triumph, that was from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. On a January 99 broadcast, Joey Styles and new color commentator Joel Gertner were calling a Storm match when Styles said, Joel, do you know where Lance Storm is from? Gertner replied, don't we all? The Impact players were so evil that they turned the franchise into a babyface. Douglas teamed with Dreamer to battle the Impact players around the horn, but Douglas's ECW career was on its last leg. He was unhappy about being owed so much money from the company. Douglas was also not happy about the direction of his character, because the franchise was being pushed aside to build new heels. Before much longer, Douglas would be heading out of ECW for good. Tired of his paychecks bouncing, Douglas tested the waters and reeled in a six-figure contract from WCW after an absence of a few months from the ring. Douglas would go on to say, I finally left because I was owed so much money and it wasn't getting any better. Steve Carino, one of the top heels of ECW's latter days, said he was disappointed at Douglas's departure, but would later come to understand where Douglas was coming from. In a quote, I was missing some payments too, but at the time, I was making only about $75 to $100 a week, working a couple of shots a week, Carino said. I was just happy for the opportunity to learn. Believe me, when I was making big money two years later, I was very upset when my checks started bouncing as well. Douglas was not the only one whose ECW checks were coming back stating insufficient funds. Many of the wrestlers were essentially working without pay until Heyman could make good on the payments. That would still be an improvement over ECW's last month when even the company's most dedicated talent would be working for free ECW was even bouncing checks for advertising payments and to Atlas Security, whose members kept outright chaos from erupting in the arenas more than once. The still-growing crowds in ECW was generally drawing, but it did not make up for all the costs 
Attendance was still strong in the New York area, but the price tag for that was about $250,000 a year to the MSG network, the cost of the network airing ECW's television shows. In addition to that, ECW was also spending about $250,000 a year for each pay-per-view that it held. Heyman took out a $750,000 loan from Quantum Financing in March of 99 against pay-per-view revenues the company had earned but not yet received. Those affected by the bounce checks were glad to have their money but the loan was clearly nothing more than a stopgap measure. Pay-per-view revenues were not coming any faster, and the problems continued. Heyman was also trying to find a business partner who would absorb some of ECW's production costs in return for a small interest stake in the struggling wrestling promotion. In 99, ECW had another problem, one that had the potential to be even more disastrous than the delays in pay-per-view money. The WWF in particular had borrowed heavily from ECW's formula of brawling all over the building, dangerous stunts, and more adult content, and Vince McMahon's company was having unprecedented success with the formula. The WWF even established a hardcore championship for matches in which falls would count anywhere, and in which the motto was, anything goes. However, many of those associated with ECW throughout the years thought the WWF missed the boat on what made the hardcore concept work in ECW. ECW really was just a strange and wonderful time in the business that will never happen again, Terry Funk said. These crazy loony guys caught the imagination of the public across the United States, but hardcore wasn't about hitting a guy with a chair or a frying pan. Hardcore was the stuff that was those wonderful physical matches that were snug and tight, whatever you want to call it. Those were just physical matches, and those guys were trying to do the best they could to make it believable. However, the WWF's vision of hardcore was what most wrestling fans in the United States saw. As ECW got more clearance nationwide on pay-per-view, and especially later when ECW finally made it to a national cable outletter, audience had the chance to see it. Fortunately, that audience tended not to see ECW as the innovator. Instead, ECW looked to the mainstream audience like a low-budget version of what the WWF was already doing. Money problems, particularly bounced checks, were causing friction among wrestlers and alienating some of ECW's most loyal associates. New England promoter Paul Richards said partner Mike Bensky and his relationship with Paul Heyman and ECW soured abruptly about two and a half years after it started. The famous bounce check was the end of our New England office, Richard said. Paul gave us a check for thousands of dollars, and it bounced the first time. I called Paul, and he gave me the same excuse he was starting to give everybody about pay-per-view payments being late. The money was part of our cost for our chair rentals, and it was coming out of Mike's personal credit card and we were not happy. Mike had talked to someone at Paul's Bank. Paul's Bank in New York said they had 20 checks that would come in in that week, and they all had bounced. A few days later, at what proved to be Richard and Bensky's last show in Fall River, Massachusetts, Richard had the check in one hand, and he confronted Paul over the problem, saying he was going to take the check back to the bank and try to cash it. I said, if this check doesn't clear, it's done. We are done. Heyman wanted to give us another check, but I knew that one would bounce as well, so I just stormed out. Well, a few days later, Richard and Bensky got a tip from someone who was working at Paul Heyman's bank. The bank told us to go right then and put the check in, so we did, and it cleared. Heyman had told them to wait a few more days because he was expecting one of what was surely big money payday. Paulie would lie so good, Richard said. He looked Mike right in the eye and said, I promise you. If you put that check in on the date, it'll clear. After we got our money, 
We called Paul Lee and told him the New England office was officially closed. Upon hearing this, Heyman was shocked. Not that one of his most successful local promoters was calling it quits, but that the check had cleared. Richard said Heyman asked the two of them to come to Philadelphia and work something out and stay on. But Richard knew Heyman was in the process of restructuring his deals with other local promoters in ways that didn't benefit the local guys at all. The local restructuring was a byproduct of Heyman's efforts to offset some of the losses by lessening the costs of ECW arena shows. One way of doing this was to restructure ECW's arrangement with local promoters. Previously, ECW paid promoters a dollar per ticket for the first 1,000 tickets sold. For each ticket sold after the 1,000 mark, promoters received $2. The new deal was for promoters to receive a flat fee of $500 to $750 for any show that drew 1,700 fans. On average, this is what Heyman saw as the break-even mark for live events. Local promoters could then earn a per-ticket bonus on tickets sold beyond the 1,700 mark. Obviously, many of the local promoters were not happy about the new arrangement. Richard declined the offer and said goodbye to ECW for good. Even before their final falling out, Richard said getting his rightful promoter's payment from Heyman was often like squeezing blood from the proverbial turnip. There was always an issue with him on how many people were actually in the building, Richard said. When it came time for the bonuses for drawing a strong house, it was always, oh, you missed it by 60 tickets. It was a constant friggin' battle. All we wanted to do was get paid. One person connected to the local promotion had even said that Heyman would sometimes underestimate the crowd size to av avoid making payments for bonuses to the local promoters. One night, we went up with clickers like the baseball umpires used to count pitches. At that point, we had already clicked over 1,000 people before we stopped, and people were still coming in. That night, we went up to Paul, and Paul said, Man, I'm sorry, just a few tickets shy of 1,000. Goodness. It seemed like there was always something that Paul would say. Sometimes he would be in a hole somewhere in the arena until 3 a.m. when we were looking for him. Richard and Bensky were not the only ones who had to give up on ECW. The hectic pace and after-hours annex proved too much for Don Leibel. Around the time New England promoters were calling it quits as well. Leibel said he finally gave up on the insanity of the wrestling business after one particularly harrowing night in a hotel several months before, Richard and Bensky finally packed it in. I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and my phone was ringing. The person calling was asking for Paul, and I figured they were just looking for Paul Heyman. I just said Paul wasn't here, and I hung up. Seconds later, someone started pounding on my door, banging, banging, banging. Liable finally answered, fearing the door would end up being broken in if he didn't. On the other side of the door was Balls Mahoney. Mahoney was furious because only one channel was working on his hotel room television. It was a porno channel, Libel said. Can you believe it? Only in ECW would this have happened with a professional wrestler mad because all he could get was pornography. Libel ended up slipping away after getting sandwiches, with no cheese, mind you, for Mahoney, who had been on a rampage of shouting and vomiting in the hotel lobby. I was out on Route 1 going to this all-night roast beef place in shorts and sneakers carrying my wallet. I said, God, if you let me get out of this, I'm going to run and never look back, Libel thought. The whole time I was thinking, my God, they're going to kill me. Minutes after returning with Mahoney's food, he saw his opening to leave and never looked back, leaving the wrestling business for good this time. In 2000, ECW ran a show in Utica and Balls was there. Libel said, I was there with my two friends because I was sure hell 
wasn't going alone. Balls was at the meet and greet. He looked at me. I looked at him, and nothing was said. I never went to another show. However, Richard said that he held no grudge against Paul Heyman or ECW. I think if I saw Paul today, I'd shake his hand and hug him, Richard said. You don't stay mad at Paul. Anyway, we ended up even. He blatantly tried to fuck us, and he screwed a lot of people out of thousands of dollars. But I'm cool with him now. On the surface, ECW looked healthy. Jim Quinlan, Richard's replacement as the New England promoter, was booking the 5,000-seat ice center. Heyman was walking into his Scardale, New York bank every week carrying stacks of cash. However, the expenses of running ECW, from talent to television costs, were taking more than a toll. However, Heyman continued to insist encouraging signs were on the horizon. ECW's support in new and old markets continued to show signs of hope. The company's August 2nd, 99 pay-per-view heat wave drew 3,400 fans at the Hare Arena in Dayton, Ohio. The show would ultimately draw a pay-per-view buy rate of 0.26, which equates to about 104,000 people ordering it. Higher number than any other ECW pay-per-view since the company's barely legal in 1997. And by the time that Heat Wave had aired, Heyman had made the deal he told wrestlers would be the salvation of the company, a line that sounded very familiar. People had heard him say before. After seven years, ECW is finally getting a national television outlet. It was TNN. When we come back in Chapter 18, we are going to be talking about ECW when they make their way to broadcast television to TNN. If uh, some of you guys remember that before it turned into Spike, it was the Nashville Network. But uh, it's going to be very interesting to find out what happens next in our story as ECW continues to ride these highs and lows, these waves of good shows, bad shows, bounce checks, People leaving out of frustration and Paul's continuing lying. But if you're enjoying what we are doing, please go on over to iTunes and find Front Row Material and leave us a five-star review. Leave us some comments, what you like about Overbooked, and what are some books that you might want us to go over next after this is done. All right, guys, that's going to do it. I hope your week is going well. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Can't wait. Got a big lineup of shows coming up next week. Front Row Material is going to have a huge show. Announcements will be coming shortly. Make sure you follow our Twitter accounts at FRM Podcast. Follow Mikey Whipwreck at Mikey Whipwreck underscore. Follow Jerry Lynn at It's Jerry Lynn. And of course, you can always follow me. I am at Mike Freeland. All right, guys, take it easy. Enjoy your weekend. Stay out of the heat. We'll catch you next time on Overbook. The Rule of L.